On October 30th, 1938, the weekly Saturday evening broadcast came on the CBS radio network. There was a brief weather report followed by some music from a group called Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. <laughs> okay. They played some music and then breaking news bulletins began interrupting the broadcast. The person said that astronomers had just begun to, to notice some odd explosions from the planet Mars through their observations and didn't quite know what it was. More music. Then came another interrupting bulletin. There was a report of an unusual object falling on a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Some more music. Classical piano, I think. Then came a live report from Grover's Mill where the report described the police officials in a crowd had gathered around this strange cylindrical object. And as they're approaching it, the top began to unscrew. And out of it came this horrific creature with tentacles. They approached it with a white flag, but he took a heat ray, obliterated all their cars, set the woods on fire, and then the signal went dead. And back to the studio, and they said, well, apparently we've experienced some kind of technical difficulties. But then came another series of bulletins, one after another. There was a, a Martian invasion taking place in the United States and across the world. There were emergency response and damage reports and evacuations, and people were clogging the highways there were Martian tripods with heat rays that were destroying bridges and power plants, and the armies was no, was no match for what was going on. Eventually, a news reporter broadcasting from the top of their broadcasting building described the invasion of New York City. He said it was like, like five great machines wading the Hudson River like a, a man wading through a brook. There was poisonous black smoke going throughout the city, people diving into the East River like rats and then falling in Times Square like flies. And he read a final bulletin stating that Martian cylinders had fallen all over the country. He described the smoke approaching down the street. Then the reporter has a coughing fit and falls silent, leaving only the sounds of the city under attack in the background. This went on for several minutes. Finally, a ham radio operator on that signal was heard calling 2X2L calling CQ New York. Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? This went on for about an hour. And with a Mercury Theater of the Air broadcast of the radio drama of H.G. Wells' story, The War of the Worlds, featuring well-known actor Orson Welles, it was presented without commercial interruption. So people who tuned in after the opening few seconds and didn't know kind of what was going on in the tensions leading up to World War II, many people actually assumed what they were hearing was a description of an invasion of the United States by the German armies, not by Martians. A minor panic ensued. Police came and tried to break into the studio to stop them from broadcasting this. The switchboard lit up with all kinds of phone calls. The next morning, the New York Times and other newspapers had it was front page news. Radio listeners in panic, taking war drama as fact. Many flee homes escaped gas raid from Mars. Nations swept by hysteria over Martian invasion. Radio play terrifies nations, scares nations. So the editorials chastised the radio industry for being irresponsible with this. There were apologies and news conferences and explanations. Now, you and I look at that, and we hear that, and you think it sounds a little silly. I mean, I mean, we would never fall for that kind of fake news in our day. <laughs> but, but there's something to it that continues to mark us, isn't there? We look at it. We operate with this low-grade sense there's something out there. 
like from another universe, another dimension, something strange, something ominous and threatening. It's coming for us. There's a reason why disaster movies and horror movies continue to do so well at the box office. It's why we're going to have Paranormal 8 and Jurassic 16. It's going to happen. Because we know that if we encounter life on another planet, it's likely to be angry and bent on annihilation. Like at the end of uh, in, in Independence Day, when they finally make contact with the invading aliens and the president says, what do you want us to do? And the answer comes back is die. That's what we think. Now, we hear that and we have a tendency to dismiss. That's just crazies who get into that kind of stuff. People with overactive imaginations or suspicious minds or the simple-minded. So people of faith are talking about spiritual warfare. Satan and devil and demons, some put it in the same category. Oh, that's just a religious fiction that feeds some kind of neurosis that you sort of keep people in line, get them to do what you want to do. But everybody knows that sort of thing has no basis in reality whatsoever, so I can dismiss it. Matter of fact, even some Christians will look at that and have adopted a faith that leans so heavily towards the rational, toward what I can explain, understand what I can see and what can work within the confines of this world. And they're suspicious of all talk of spiritual realities outside of earth. So we hear talk like this and we say, oh, those are just those charismaniacs who talk about, about demons causing traffic jams and making sure that I see a chocolate peanut butter shake the week I start my diet. That's what demons do. And we dismiss it. Neither one of those really work. C.S. Lewis said this, he said about this whole issue. There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist who doesn't believe they exist or a magician who sees them everywhere with the same delight. I think he's right. Because when we look at Scripture, we find that spiritual warfare is a key theme of the Bible. It's consistently presented as an aspect of the life and mission of Jesus' people. So we need to, to deal with it. Now, we've been talking this summer about what it means to live a life that is rooted we looked at Colossians chapter 2, which says, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. This is you were taught, overflowing with thanksgiving, want to live a life that puts down deep roots, that's firm and, and fruitful and strong. So we're talking about what are those things that we need to give ourselves to so we develop that kind of deep root. So we said a relationship with Jesus, ordering our life by God's word, we talked about prayer and having conversations with God, Last week we talked about having a Godward view of suffering. This morning we want to talk about the idea of spiritual warfare. And we're drawing all of this from the life and writings of Peter. We're getting our principles from his writings. We're in this morning we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5. I encourage you to go ahead and turn there to 1 Peter chapter 5. Once we establish the principle, then we look at how this works in practice from some experience of Peter's both positive and, as we'll see this morning, negative so would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word and let's hear these verses. First Peter chapter five, beginning in verse eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, when we 
come to deal with things like this. We know this is your word. It's true. It's what we build our faith on. Lord, we're also aware that any time that we try to expose the strategies and the work of the enemy that he will attack even in this moment. So we would pray by the blood of Christ and the power of the resurrection in these next moments that you would prevent us from being distracted in our souls and our minds. We could clearly hear the truth of the gospel that is the biggest thing for us to know of all and the realities of what we deal with. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, be seated. So you read those verses, you hear warfare language, don't you? It says there's an adversary and there needs to be a resistance that comes. So here's our principle that we're going to talk about for a few minutes. Disciples will be attacked by a strong enemy but have a stronger deliverer. You see, the very essence of spiritual warfare is that there's a real ongoing cosmic conflict between the one true God and his adversary, Satan or the devil. Now, it's unseen, it's often unrecognized, but it is real. And the battlefronts of that war are anything and everything associated with God in any possible way. And every person on the planet is in on it, is a part of this. Now, so let's ask, first of all, why is there a conflict and how did we get in it? To begin with. Now, most people probably are aware of the story of what happened in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were tempted by the, by the serpent. Now, you know that wasn't over an apple. The reality of what was going on here was a stirring doubts about God's goodness, inciting rebellion against God's rule. But where did that come from? Well, there's a story before the story. Sometime before human history, there was a rebellion among the angels in heaven because one of them, the most glorious of all, named Lucifer, the son of the morning, became prideful and longed to usurp God's throne, to get on God's throne for himself. And he convinced fully one-third of the angels in heaven to join him in that rebellion. Revelation 12 describes it this way. It says, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient servant who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Now, this all happened before Eden. So now thrown to earth, now there is a devil, there's the serpent, there's the dragon, there's Satan on earth who hates and opposes God. He is an accuser, he's a deceiver. Jesus called him the father of lies. He is also called in the scriptures Apollyon, which means the destroyer or the bringer of ruin. So he's on earth and he slithers through the garden to tempt the first humans to join his rebellion, and they did. They rebelled against God's ways and his love and, and joined the rebellion. Soon after the fall, God pronounced a curse on the serpent, promising his destruction. Because you've done this, he said. Cursed are you, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now the offspring of the seed of the woman is obviously, is a, this is talking about Jesus who will be born of the virgin Mary. But before that, the nation Israel, as you fashion that as a woman, will be the one through whom Messiah himself will come. And so he describes this conflict that all of history flows by with these two adversaries at war. Now, Revelation 12 goes on to describe this. There's a woman giving birth to a child and a great red dragon. Look what happens. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, if you remember the history of Israel, the nation through whom the Messiah was going to come, they had gone as a small group to Egypt during a famine. They continued to grow and to grow and to grow, and eventually became a threat to the people of Egypt. Remember what Pharaoh did when he decided they were a threat? He said, kill all the babies. Kill all the boys, kill all the babies, and we can wipe out this generation and remove the threat that is there. Well, God came and moved and delivered them. Fast forward to the birth of Christ. There's this wonderful thing. It's Bethlehem, and there's angels, and there's shepherds, and the wise men come, and in the middle of all that, you remember what Herod did? Herod heard about a new king coming. What did Herod say? Herod said, oh, kill the babies. If we wipe out all the boys two years old and under, we can take care of this and stop it where it is. But God delivered Jesus in the middle of that moment. So they're being delivered. Now the dragon's not happy with that. Look what happens. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the dragon is making war Again, it says, hold the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments of God. Who does that describe? That describes Christians. Christians, those who have trusted Christ, repented of sin, trusted him, hold the commandments and testimony of Jesus, keep the commandments of God because he's Lord, we're gonna follow him. Anybody who has trusted Christ as Savior and committed to him as Lord has declared allegiance to a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. So when you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that is a declaration of allegiance to King Jesus and to the kingdom of God. And it is a declaration of war against Satan. So what we see when we look at all this is this. Every single person on the planet is a participant in this spiritual war. At creation, by creation, every human being is a target of Satan. He says, seeking whom he may devour. Well, what's his goal when he's going to devour? Thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. This is what Satan does. He takes all the good gifts God has given and he twists them or distorts them. So you can look at a lot of good things in our world, uh, like love or justice or truth, and when there's a problem, if you trace it back, what you find is something good has been twisted away from its original intent that God had designed. So all of us are in some way affected by this. He wants to twist and steal all that is good of God. We all deal with that. But here's what's really crucial to understand. Human souls are Satan's deepest hatred and most precious delicacy. Why? Because for Satan, when he looks at human beings who every one of us created in the image of God, he hates and opposes all that is of God. He wants to come against those who are of him. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Now listen, if you have, are here this morning and have not repented of sin, trusted Christ, stepped across the line of faith in Christ, You are under the judgment of God himself. And here's what Satan wants to do. He wants to keep you from doing anything about that. He wants to blind you from the truth of the gospel. He wants to convince you that it doesn't really matter. 
that you can wait, that's for somebody else, not really for you. You can deal with it at some point. It's, there's a bunch of paths, all kinds of things he will do. He's intent on keeping you from God. And at this moment, if you have not trusted Christ and you're under the judgment of God and Satan's keeping you from it, he's winning, which means that should you die in this moment, he will win and he will drag you to hell with him and his demons. That's what he's doing. That's what he's up to. Now, so I wanna plead with you to think about where you stand with this God. Because if you're a human being, you're a target. We all deal with that at some level. But if you're a Christian, by salvation, every Christian is a threat to Satan. He says he's your adversary. Every hint of gospel faithful living is a threat to Satan. If you're living your Christian faith and you have no sense of being opposed and having any kind of warfare or opposition, it's probably because you're going the same way as the enemy. You're not opposing him in any way. The normal Christian life is intended to be lived in a war zone. He's going to fight you when you try to follow Jesus. He's going to fight you when you try to order your life by God's word and by God's ways. He's going to fight you in your marriage, with your children, with your time and your money and your vocation, in your priorities, in your prayer life, in your attempt to serve Christ. He's going to fight you in some way. We've got to become aware of that reality. A couple of years after the War of the Worlds broadcast, there was an interview between the author, H.G. Wells, and the actor who put it on, Orson Welles, not related in any way. And they asked him a question, by this time World War II, it's early 1940, this time World War II is gaining momentum uh, in Europe, but the United States had not yet entered into this. And they were asked about the idea that War of the Worlds had caused a panic by, by war fears. That's what had driven all that. Here's what H.G. Wells said. You aren't quite serious in America yet. You haven't got the war right under your chins, and the consequence is you can still play with ideas of terror and conflict. It's a natural thing to do until you're right up against it, which Orson Welles said, until it ceases to be a game, which H.C. Wells then repeated, yes, until it ceases to be a game. And let's get really clear here. Spiritual warfare is not a game. It is not to be trifled with. Because the glory of God and the fame of Jesus and the maturity and sanctification of believers and the destiny of eternal souls are at stake. It is not something to trifle with in any way. So we have a strong enemy, but a stronger deliverer. Let's look at that side of this equation because there, there's three crucial realities you need to understand about spiritual warfare. The first one is this, that God and Satan are not equivalent adversaries. This is not, oh, there's, there's this good power and this evil power, and they wrestle back and forth. No, they're not the same. God is creator. He's eternal. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's in all places. Satan, he's a creative being. He's temporal. He doesn't last. He's limited in power to earthly things, and he, he's, his presence is one place at a time. Secondly, to understand, God is sovereign. Satan is the servant. In, in the mystery of God's ways, in God's redemptive purposes, Satan is under the sovereign control of God. Maybe you remember Job. 
Remember, Satan attacked Job, attacked his family and his livelihood and his health and his reputation, but he was limited as to how far he could go because God had sovereignly set boundaries. You can go here, but no further. So though Satan is the prince of this earth and a ruler in so many ways, he is on a long chain, but it's a chain held in the king's right hand. He's a servant. But ultimately, understand this. God is the victor, and Satan is the vanquished. This is what we sing when we talk about the gospel and sing about the realities of the gospel. And I love this verse from 1 John chapter 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he showed up. Now listen, when we look at this and we see with a bloody cross and an empty tomb, Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan. Now look, it says Satan may prowl like a lion. Now you can prowl like a lion, but not be a lion. Jesus Christ alone is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he stomped on the head of the serpent and has defeated him. Yes, Jesus Christ wins the victory, Satan loses. That's our hope. That's what we hold to when we look at that. Let's understand, the angry death thrashing of a serpent can still be dangerous. A couple months ago, Jeremy Sutcliffe and his wife were weeding their garden near Corpus Christi, Texas. In the middle of it, they spotted a four-foot rattlesnake going through there. Jeremy grabbed his shovel, and he beheaded the snake with his shovel. This is the head of the snake. He went on and did the rest of their yard work there. A few minutes later, they, he grabbed the head of the snake to dispose of it, and the snake stuck its fangs into his hand. Because snakes can still attack by reflexive action up to an hour after you've completely beheaded them from the rest of their body. The full venom went into Jeremy. He went into shock within minutes. He went into a coma for five days. His body went into septic failure. He survived, but it was a rough go for a while. Let's understand, there's victory assured, yes, but until then, there's real spiritual battle for God's people who follow him. So how do we fight? Well, that's when we look at the practice of things. So look over now in Luke 22. Luke 22. Peter's most notorious failure. Jesus and disciples are in the upper room for Passover the night before the crucifixion. He shared the Lord's Supper. He's taught them their final lessons, their summary reminders of their mission, what they're about. He talked about being betrayed by one of them, and they kind of wrestles about that. And then he turns directly to Peter. Verse 31, Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And we have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, what do we need to know here? Notice this, first of all. Our battles with Satan are individually targeted. Peter, Satan has demanded you to have you, to sift you. So like Job, he had to ask permission. But would you notice the attack is not generic. It's individualized. The prowling lion is looking for opportunity. He's looking for prey that are unaware, who are vulnerable because of their speed or their, their size. He identifies the weakness and tailors his attack precisely at that spot. Now remember when, when Satan came and tempted Christ, who had been fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He, he tempted him at the point of his desires, turn these stones into bread. 
at the point of his identity, if you are the son of God, jump off this cliff. And at the point of his purpose, he's gonna rule the world, all you gotta do is bow down and worship me. So at the point of his desires, what made him happy, his identity, who he was, and his purpose, why he was around, that's where he came against him. Now with Peter, he says, he just wants to sift you. You may remember when we talked and we went through Psalm 1, we talked about how they used to sift the wheat and they would take the wheat and take these rakes and toss it up. So the, the heavier seed would fall back down, the chaff would blow away. There's a violence to it. There's a sifting, there's a throwing, there's a separating that is coming. He's saying, he's gonna separate you. We're gonna see what's really real in you, Peter. So let me ask you, Satan attacks, where might he target his attack to you? Where might he come to sift you? And when we like the person next to you, everybody's different. Here's what Satan will do. He will target the most tender spot in your soul. The weakest spot in your flesh. Here's what's not gonna happen. Satan's spiritual war for you, he's not gonna come to you and say, hey, got an idea. Why don't you start a meth lab in your basement, okay? That's not gonna be the way it's gonna happen because he comes disguised as an angel of light. It looks so good. It feels so right. And he'll come and he'll tempt you at those same areas. Make something other than Jesus the source of your satisfaction the source of your happiness, to meet the desires and the longings that you have in life. He'll come and he'll tempt you to look to something besides the gospel and your relationship with God as your heavenly father, something else for your identity. Applause from others, your body image, some kind of achievement, some kind of position. He'll come to you and he'll bat you right at that point where you're gonna live out what really matters the glory of God, the great commission, or is it gonna be something else that just works for you and seems to fit pretty well? Now, how do you know if the difficulty or struggle you're having is actually spiritual warfare? If when that thing is addressed or you think about it and made a move toward it, you find yourself becoming defensive or angry or hiding and not gonna tell anybody, when that's addressed, that may be the spot. If there's one particular area that you keep struggling with and wrestling with, listen, if you were wrestling with being able to consistently read the word of God and pray and talk to your heavenly father, would you recognize that the possibility is that the reality of your struggles is not just that you have a lack of discipline, but that the enemy is trying to steal that away from you. He doesn't want you to be in God's word. Or it's those things you keep coming back to over and over again. That sense of guilt or failure or regret, or something in your past that's happened before, something that's defined your story over and over again, that sense of fear about what to do next. Maybe it's at that point where you know if I serve Jesus, I need to live and express the gospel here to this person in this conversation, stand up even though it may cost me, and you keep hesitating back and back. It's those kind of points where the reality of Christ is to take hold in your life, that begins to define you. It's exactly that point he's going to oppose you. So you gotta be watchful for the battlefield is unique to you. Begin to identify that. But also would you notice that our spiritual battles require spiritual weapons. 
Jesus doesn't give Peter techniques. I mean, Jesus had been sifted before. He knew what that was like. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, got this. Look, Satan asked me to do this. Well, listen, here's what I have. Seven sure strategies for stopping Satan when sifted. He doesn't give him that. He says, oh, I'll pray for you. Does that remind you another time when Jesus and Peter were together? Remember, they came on a man who had a son who was having these horrible seizures that were caused by demons. And the disciples had tried to cast him out and couldn't. And Jesus came and he cast out the demons. And the disciples said, why couldn't we do it? He said, this kind only comes out by prayer and by fasting. Our default sometimes is to try to address the spiritual struggles we're having in the same way we fix stuff on earth. Oh, I'll just get some better habits. If I, can just be, if I can just be more disciplined, I don't think this will be quite an issue for me anymore. Or I just need some more knowledge, some more doctrine. I need to do some more stuff, take some more studies. More, if I can just get some more stuff up here, I'll be good. I'll be ready to go. Or if I can just have some more positive activity in my life, that would get me away from that. Oh, none of those things recognize the fact that there are spiritual realities at play around us. So 2 Corinthians says this, though we walk according to the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We have divine power to destroy strongholds. Places where the Satan wants to get a hold, get a stronghold. He wants to get a foothold. He wants to set up camp inside of you. You're not going to root that out just by doing better, being more organized, thinking rightly, and having positive activity in your life. This kind of spiritual battle can only be fought with heavenly resources. So what's he given us for that? I love this. He says, greater is he who's in you than in the world. He's given himself. The minute you and I trust Christ, he takes up resins inside of us. And so the sin-killing power of the cross and the life-giving truth of the resurrection are alive in us. The same thing that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. So then Paul comes and he says, oh, it's, it's like putting on spiritual, spiritual armor. Ephesians 6. He says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm on the belt of truth so you know what's real. The breastplate of righteousness, which is perfectly good and beautiful and right. The shoes of the gospel of peace, moving forward to reconcile people to God and each other. The shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil and just trusting him. The helmet of salvation to guard your thoughts. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the truth of God, praying at all times in the spirit. So if I have faith that the gospel is real, what happens is this protects my thoughts, my character, my affection, my directions, my truth. And would you notice when the Bible describes spiritual armor, there's nothing for the back. It says, go forward, advance against the enemy. Don't turn tail and run. You advance against what's crucial, that we know the realities of the gospel. Now listen, listen. It is a great thing if you know all four parts of the story and you can say them. That's wonderful. We want you to know that. It's wonderful. You know all the three circles and you can write in all the pieces of that diagram that describes the reality and the impulse of the gospel. Yes. But even more, you need to think deeply, pray deeply, meditate deeply on how those realities have implications that fit exactly that spot where Satan is attacking you. Because it's the gospel by which we battle so we stay focused. So when I realize where the battlefield is, use spiritual weapons and then recognize that our spiritual battles demand our honest vulnerability. Did you notice in that that Peter basically blew Jesus off? 
It's like Peter says, okay, I got it. The prince of darkness has targeted me. I'm with you. I'm good. I got all this taken care of. No problem. And you can almost see in the last verse, Jesus just shaking his head. No. The greatest danger to the disciple in spiritual warfare is presumption and overconfidence. I got this. This is no issue for me. No problem. I'm committed to you, Jesus. I got it. No problem. This is not, that I know it happens to other Christians in other places, but it's not going to really bother me. I'm not really that vulnerable. Now, let me remind you of something. A lion is an apex predator. His nature is to hunt and to kill. You can raise him from a cub, but you're not going to tame the wild killer nature, and you're not going to turn the lion into a really large kitty cat. Understand, Satan is not your pet. You can't look at him like that. He's a threat. And the minute you assume that spiritual warfare is not an issue for you, listen, brother, sister, he will take you out. He will take out your marriage. He will take out your family. He will take out your, your reputation. He will take out your integrity. He will come against you. He's a strong enemy. So 1 Corinthians 12 says this, if you think you're standing firm, be careful. Take heed. Watch out so you don't fall. Got to be ready for what's coming. Thing I've got my act together with Jesus is the surest pride that comes before a fall. So we have to be humble and recognize you're vulnerable. I'm vulnerable to temptation, to the whispers, the stab of accusation, to being deceived. Satan keeps coming for you. When you've got one sort of taken care of, he's gonna circle around and come on the other side. He's relentless. He's not going to let go. If you're identified with Jesus, he's going to come after you until your very last breath on this planet. You're vulnerable. Be humble. Not only that, you desperately need Jesus every minute, every hour. You cling to the gospel. You've run to the cross. you got to remember, only the resurrection was big enough to get up after the punch of death. you got to remember that. Now hold on to that for what it's worth. Now, wouldn't it be great to see that Peter got that and walked strong into it? He didn't, did he? You know where this goes. I love the Bible's ruthless honesty, even about its heroes. A few hours around a campfire, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And it wasn't the tip of a spear. It was at a servant girl's question. You're with him. You sound like him. Some other guy said that, and Jesus, and, and so Peter denied even knowing him, being associated with him. Jesus walked by, looked him in the eye right at that moment. So Peter went out and wept bitterly because he knew he had betrayed his friend. He wasn't there when Jesus died on the cross. Can you imagine what it was like in those few days where Peter was probably by himself, totally immersed in regret, totally immersed in heartache and bitterness. Peter lost that spiritual battle with Satan. Jesus rises, meets the women in the garden. Go tell the disciples and Peter. He's already looking for him. A couple days later, they have breakfast on a beach. And in that moment, they have a conversation. And Jesus forgives Peter and sets him back on his feet. Once you know his loss wasn't the definer of who he was, that Jesus' love was bigger than his failure. So as you look at this last big truth, understand this. Disciples may lose a battle, but never be destroyed. This war is going to continue. It's going to go on. 
So right now, this morning, you know what it is. There's a war in your world. There's some place where the enemy is coming after you in your emotions, in your heart, in your planning, in your future, in your sense, in your identity, in your sense of, of satisfaction. And maybe he's just eating your lunch. Maybe that one temptation you've been battling for months, you felt it again this morning or last night, and you bring that in here and you're carrying that. And you've got that sense of failure and there's struggling going on and the poison gas of shame is coming and suffocating you and maybe even wants to avoid Jesus altogether because you're so ashamed of what you have done. Would I just kind of urge you this morning to run to Jesus because he's your strong and tender warrior king. You come to him in a moment as we're gonna have some time to pray together. You come to him because he's the overwhelming Jesus. You can put confidence in him. He's the strong Jesus, and his nail-scarred hands are everything you need to defeat your enemy. He's the forgiving Jesus. Even if you've blown it, he will forgive. His love remains even in the struggle. And he's the merciful Jesus. He's setting you back on your feet again, back in the battle. He's going to be side by side with you every step of the way until that day when all the battles are over and Satan is gone and Jesus reigns, and we delight in him forever. Because the reality is, no matter how big the battle, our Savior is the victor. And we, amen. And we are his. So we stand in the victory too. Let's stand together and pray. So Lord, now we come to a moment of responding to the realities of the gospel we've just heard. So I pray, Lord, for those maybe here this morning who have seen maybe for the first time that the issue they keep coming back to, the internal dialogue, the constant on-repeat struggle of their soul, of their heart, of their identity, of their desires, may not be just because they can't get their act together, but may in fact be a spiritual warfare from their enemy. And this morning I would pray that many would come and kneel here and in coming and kneeling just say, oh Jesus, I need you to be my warrior in this and be my victor. And Lord, for some, the battle is right now when they sense the prompt, they even go and kneel to say they need you. That's a part of the battle too. And we pray that you would come. Lord, there's others here today who have never stepped across the line of faith and they know if their life ended now that Satan would, would have them. Maybe today's the day for them to come and kneel here and repent of sin and trust Christ alone to be their rescuer. So Lord, we know we're in the battle. Would you help us in this moment to come and kneel and pray and to remind ourselves again that you have overcome. We can trust in you to release us so we can live in freedom with you. We love you. We thank you for your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You come as we worship together.